Welcome to another episode of the Dan Norton Show. Today, I am here with Carson Hughes. Now, I'm not sure I should have introduced the show like that because Carson has a YouTube channel of his own, so we're kind of uh, co-equal hosts on this. So he he might as well just say welcome to the Carson Hughes Show or whatever he does for his channel. But uh, anyways, I'm Dan Norton, and I'm here with Carson Hughes. Um, so I've got a YouTube channel. Um, so I guess this is more for Carson's audience. I'm at uh, youtube.com slash Norton one or if you search for Selfishness Project, that's an easy way to find my channel. Uh, I'm a big supporter of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. And somehow or other, Carson uh, got in touch with me, and he said he was interested in having a conversation. And we, we decided for this call, we would talk about abortion. So that's a little about me and uh, my backgrounds. And now I'll throw it over to Carson. Um, so yeah, my name is Carson Hughes. Um, I have a YouTube channel. Um, I'm very passionate about, uh, politics and philosophy. I'm currently doing some writing on the topic. Um, but, um, uh, unlike Dan, I am not a, a PhD in philosophy. So I am not, um, I am only educated by my own reading. So I do, uh, I, I read as often as I can. And I also, um, like Ayn Rand and I'm a fan of objectivism, um, and anyways, yeah, I like to do uh, talks on various different topics, and um, I actually used to be pro-choice, and I'm currently leaning very pro-life, and I'm looking forward to this conversation to see if uh, maybe I can be convinced of something that I'm not, and I'm very interested in challenging your ideas that I've heard on other debates you've had, so yeah. All right, sounds good. So I guess let's get into that. I have done two debates on abortion, one maybe a year and a half ago with Tim Seiler, and then another one more recently, um, just uh, a month or so ago, with Harley Dalton. And uh, both of those are on my channel. And I think this, the latter is the one that you saw. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I'm pretty flexible in how we get into this topic. Uh, so if you have a certain angle, you want to come in uh, at it with that's fine. Otherwise, you know, I can say some things to start us off. But yeah, um, so if you don't have the preference of starting it off, my main uh, focus is I wanted to understand more of your ideas on an, a person becoming a human by being individuated. And so I, I guess my my initial question, uh, well, I guess uh, for anybody that hasn't seen other debates of yours on this topic, do you want to explain uh, why you feel this makes somebody a human? Okay, so <clears throat> I think, so what I said in my last debate and emphasized a lot is I think that something is a human once it becomes individuated, which a fetus or an embryo is not, it's just inside the mother. And as for why I, I use that, I, I, I cited what I refer to as concept formation. So Ayn Rand has a um, book called Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, which I happen to have a copy of right here. And she talks about how we form concepts that we use, whether it's man or table um, or any other concepts. And uh, there's there's a lot that could be said about it. But I think what goes into our formation of this concept, like as babies, we just look out at the world and we don't already have this idea of man or human or tree or rock or anything else. But we acquire these concepts over time. And how does that happen? Well, I think with the with the case of 
let's just say table. That's one of the examples she uses. It's because we see different things in the world that have something in something similar about them as opposed to other things. So you see, you might see a round table, a square table, a wooden table, a plastic table, and they have all these variations, yet there's still something similar about all these things in virtue of which we call them all tables as against something like chairs or sofas or other items of furniture, which have a somewhat different structure. And there's variations among those as well. And I think likewise with the concept man, how do we form this concept? Well, we see things in the world like you, Carson Hughes right now, and like me and other people walking around. And we notice a similarity between these things as opposed to things like dogs and cats and trees. And in virtue of that similarity that we observe um, among the things that we call humans, that, that's, that's how we get this concept human. It's to pick out these things in the world and at first, at least, uh, that concept, I don't think, extends to things like a fetus or an embryo. You can't even see it. So, of course, you're not going to say, oh, well, something like Carson Hughes right now reminds me uh, or resembles uh, a, a zygote. So I'm going to group mm -hmm. them under the same term and call them both man. No, that's not something a child would do. Um, it can't even see the, the zygote or the embryo or the fetus. So at least at first it wouldn't group that thing under the concept human or man. Now, maybe you can make an argument that although it doesn't at first group something like that under the concept man, you could later be justified in doing so. Now, I don't think so. I think it's um, it makes more sense to just have a different concept once you learn about the zygote or the fetus or the embryo, embryo and just use those concepts, mm -hmm. zygos, embryo, fetus and um, preserve the concept human in the way you initially got it just by seeing things like you and I. And um, so that's a little about what, what I mean when I say through the concept formation process, we have this term man, and it applies to certain things, but not other things. But I'll just For pause sure. there and throw it back okay. to you. Yeah, so I, I have uh, one silly question that might just get a really short answer. And then I have the main question. But could you describe everything about one person that makes them individuated? Like what, what are all the things, which I'm guessing it wouldn't need to be much, but you, what is everything that you could explain of why you are individuated? I think the main <clears throat> idea is just physical separation. So you're not inside of somebody else. Uh, you would not be separated from somebody else. In that case, you would not be individuated. So in a way, separation is, I don't know if it's, it's an exact synonym of individuation, but it maybe it conveys more of what the idea is. Um, okay. So if you, but there's nothing else to it. It is the separation itself. Uh, I, I think that's much. accurate. I'm just curious if you yeah. have a different take on it. Okay. So yeah. if you have a, a baby, let's say a baby is born early. It's like a, a woman's pregnant for eight and a half months. Baby's born early. we got this baby. It's by itself. Umbilical cords cut. You're holding this baby. This baby's individuated, right? Yeah. Okay. And then you're individuated, uh, that mother is individuated. Um, so I guess my question is, when the baby is connected to the mother, what makes the baby less individuated than the mother? I feel like once a woman's pregnant by these terms you're using, that would make the woman not individuated anymore. Well, see, when if you have someone growing inside of you, I don't, I think... I think what um, that doesn't count against your individuation, but if you are growing inside of somebody else, I think it does. I, I think you can survive in a way 
that the that the fetus can't. So the, the mother doesn't uh, need that thing growing inside of it in order to survive. The, the fetus does need to be growing inside of the mother in order to survive. So she's, she's her own entity in a way that I think the fetus is not. Okay. And I'm not sure that exactly uh, picks out the most important or fundamental aspect of it, but I wouldn't say that she's not individuated because she has a fetus inside her. Yeah, that, that's why I was wondering about the definition of the separation part, because if you could if you could take two things that you would call a human and then they're not separated, why one versus the other? I do see the reason for leaning towards one, especially when it comes to rights. I'd give rights to one more so than the other. But uh, another another thing that I, I would wonder is if you look, because the response to that was that the baby needs the mother. Now, the 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 baby, let's just call it a baby for fun, or fetus, whatever. The the fetus, a day before it's born, it needs to be out to survive. But at that point, it doesn't need the mother to survive. So I guess um, that's one comment. And then the other comment would be, does does the the living aspect matter? So if you have a baby the day before it's born and a mother, and let's say the mother gets killed. And the baby didn't die yet. I don't know how long people have to get a baby out of a, a dead mom, but let's say a baby can like hang out in a dead mom for an hour. Does the death of the mother make it individuated or, and if not, and it's the removing it from the mother, then my question would be, is there an argument for saying, Hey, let's not remove it um, because it isn't anything of value yet because it isn't a human. <clears throat> This is a case I haven't thought about. So the the mother gets killed and the baby can last for an hour. And uh, there's a question as to what should be done with it. Maybe in this case, just thinking off the top of my head, the decision would revert to the father if the father is around. Mm. And uh, I guess he would be the next most plausible person to have a say over what should happen with the fetus which is almost a almost a person but not yet i would say or well, why would being. he why would he have any say i wonder like just because if you have the idea that because it's not a human and it's inside of somebody that person can have its rights to have that thing terminated removed anything from itself because it's violating its own rights but um, I, I don't see how rights would, especially to a non-human, would connect to something just because it's um, it's got the same, you know, blood and, yeah. I'm not sure I followed your your question there. So like, so, so there, there's, I do follow the idea of a, a pregnant person. If you are calling what's inside the person, not human, that person has rights to remove a tumor. It can remove a parasite and let's say it could remove a fetus. So that right makes sense. But if the mother dies and you just have a, um, a fetus inside, um, it, it, especially if we're looking at it as not even a human, it's not a human unless it gets removed. Why would there be a person on earth? that would be able to make that decision outside of the law making the decision. The, the, the law could say, we view this as a human, so therefore save it because the mother's dead and the mother isn't doesn't have rights anymore. Or you could view it as not a human and then in all cases you just leave it alone because nobody owns that woman's body. 
I just don't see the connection there logically. Well, so one thing you said in there <clears throat> was the law could view it as a human. I am not convinced that would be correct because I don't think it's individuated yet if it's still in the mother. And I think of being individuated as a necessary condition of being a human, if not a, a sufficient condition. Uh, but as to, you know, why should anyone have a say? I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's a very unusual case. So um, it's, I guess it's not obvious, but I was, I guess I'm just thinking like, well, who is, who is the most responsible for this thing's existence? other than the mother. So if the mother is out of the picture, well, it seems like the next person who would be most responsible for its existence would be the father. So why not uh, say he's the one who's got to say and what happens to it? That, I, that, I can't does, think of, that does make some sense if we were to put some kind of value on it. Like if, if we view this thing that we know has the potential to be a human, um, if we're calling it not a human because it's not individuated, um, but there's some kind of value we give it for having that potential. Uh, are we giving it value? And is it just because the mother is dead or? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know that it's, <clears throat> is, it's an issue of value. I mean, the, the father might not want the, the, the fetus. He might not want a son or a daughter. And so maybe he would decide, uh, let's, let's just kill this thing or let it die on its own inside the mother who's already dead. Or if he really wanted a child, maybe this was his, his dream in life, or just one of his big goals in life was to have a child. Then in that case, that father might have a lot of value on, on the fetus and say, let's, you know, let's get it out. Gotcha. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, um, I mean, other, I, I don't think a person is property, but maybe it's, the next closest concept we could use in this concept like if 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 you've got a car well if you if you're responsible for bringing that car into existence then you have a say over um what's done with it in the world and maybe someone else had a greater uh, role and or uh, played a greater uh role in bringing this car into existence but if you have kind of a subsidiary role in the way that a father does with regard to a fetus then maybe just as your subsidiary role in regard to some property would devolve onto you if the primary person is out of the picture, then likewise, in this case, um, it would devolve to uh, the second most responsible person for this thing. Mm. Uh, I agree. So with, that, yeah. I agree with the property element because uh, not only do I agree on property, but I agree that children, in a sense, are the parents' property. So that makes sense. Um, but the the element I don't agree on. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the mother's dead. So I don't know. So if you have a dead body, it's just hanging out there. It There's nothing that makes that body mean much of anything. So if you have an alive uh, nine-month grown fetus inside of that body, there's not much of a difference between that fetus being in there and that fetus being in a closet. Like there... It, unless we're giving that body some kind of meaning other than knowing its history, we know the history that that body grew that baby, but 
imagine you have this dead body and it has the baby in it because it's never been born. But then you have a situation where a woman gives birth to a, a baby, just about the same type of baby, but then that mother dies. And for some fun hypothetical reason, we say, hey, let's put the baby back in. And you put the baby back in. Let's say the dad doesn't want the baby. It's already been born. You can't kill a born baby. So you just shove it back in. Is the fact that it's inside of a certain location affecting that? <clears throat> the so the idea is the the um the the baby is born to, to the mother is alive she gives birth then the mother dies then you you put the the baby back in the dead mother is that the example yeah does that baby lose its rights because it's inside of a human and by rights i actually I, mean protection not rights but does it lose its rights um, I, I, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, 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 my first thought on this hypothetical, which is <laughs> quite strange, but, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I get maybe, I guess you like those. I, I I've watched some of your other videos and I, I've noticed some, uh, you've introduced some pretty, uh, out there hypotheticals, but, um, uh, going with it in this case, my, my first thought on it is it would probably violate the rights of the baby to try to stick it back in the the dead mother because i it seems like i i would guess at least that that's not the best thing for its survival mm -hmm. and uh so you would i guess you would be or for its life maybe that would kill it if you stuffed it back in and um mm -hmm. so yeah i think it would be violating that baby's rights to live if you treated it in that way I guess I'm trying to figure out the separation between that and a dead mom with a baby inside of it, that the baby's alive. Like it's some kind of, it's like extremely trapped in there, but I'm trying to see how it's being trapped is affecting it so badly. Like imagine a car wreck and there's a baby in there. And by the end of it, you don't even see the car anymore. You just see a pile of people and there's a bunch of dead people piled on top of a baby. I don't think that the dad of that baby should be able to say, since there's people trapping it from moving, we should let it die because I don't want a baby anymore. You would say there's an alive human that, that you describe as alive if you took that baby and just had it on its own. And then we're having it be encased in the dead flesh of what used to be a human. I, I guess I just don't see um, the detail that makes it deserve that makes it not on a person to be able to save it. Or I guess before even a dad could say anything, if I knew that woman was dead and I was there and I'm like, oh, there's a baby in here. I'm going to cut it out. And I cut it out. Should there, I mean, that that's way more complicated because people probably shouldn't start cutting on people that just got in a car wreck. But uh, if in this hypothetical, we knew that she was 100% dead and I cut a baby out, did I make the wrong call? I'm I, I've I've lost the hypothetical. I, I could, could you say it briefly what it is? Sorry, yeah, I'll 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 just say that the element of you have a you have a car wreck and it ends up with a bunch of a pile of dead fat people on top of a baby. The baby who was out of its mother, or yeah, let's just say it. this is a baby that was just hanging out on its own. Okay, um, and it's it's trapped by a bunch of people, and you could remove those people. I, I'm I'm trying to see the distinction between a bunch of people on top of a baby versus a baby inside of its mother. Like it's just being trapped between flesh and that. 
what makes it not deserve protection if it's trapped between flesh? Well, it's it sounds like the in one case it's it, it's not individuated in the case where it's inside the mother, whereas if it's just got a bunch of people piled on top of it, I would say it's it is individuated um, su- sufficiently. I mean, you have a pile of football players, you know, who you know they've been tackling each other, and you got a big pile of human beings. I wouldn't say they're not individuated in the relevant sense. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I would say, you know, if you're literally inside of another person, I would say you're not individuated in that case. So um, that's the sort of distinction I would, I think I would make in this case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's probably a good point to stop the individuation element, but I just, I don't feel convinced that once the person's dead, that there's any room for argument that there's no individuation because the, the, the difference is time. If that baby could survive for ever, then eventually that, that mom's going to rot. And, you know, like there's just a, there, there's at least not another person that's removing its individuation. Um, but, uh, but it might be best to go to a different topic. I don't know. Sure. We can go to another topic. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, guess, unless you wanted to press more on that. It's, it's, well, I guess I want to press a little more on it. Um, just because, uh, so you mentioned you watched some of my stuff. You saw the hypotheticals. Hopefully you don't uh, despise hypotheticals. I think it's a, <laughs> it's a good way to see where one stands, especially if you go to far extremes, but I don't know if you saw the one that I did on the amputation argument. Is this which, the one with the hand and the finger inside of the uh, no, no, that, that one's just to show that in most cases, the mother is the one that put the baby inside of herself, but no, the amputation one is basically a counter to, um, bodily autonomy, but it's also, I think it's a counter to this individuated idea where if the fetus that's inside the oh, mother, hold on a second, hold on a second. Yeah. There's a helicopter going over and it's drowning out my audio and I, I'm having oh, gotcha. trouble hearing you. And I think it's about out of range now so you can continue your microphone is really good because i cannot hear the helicopter but i can hear you perfectly oh okay well that's good oh by by the way so on hypotheticals i've uh i've wondered about that recently like to what extent are they appropriate i've i've used some kind of far-fetched hypotheticals recently in another context and some people were objecting, oh, that's so unrealistic. It's actually not a hypothetical I made up, but it's one um, that's commonly used in online debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coconut Island, it's called. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh-uh. Uh, it's, it's a vulgar example. It's it's for, um, it's a political philosophy kind of example. Well, I guess abortion is too in a way. But anyway, um, I guess hypotheticals, even if they're very outlandish, they can be they can't have some value. Ayn Rand has one involving an immortal robot in her mm-hmm. book, The Virtue of Selfishness, um, which I've got here. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's just a couple sentences. Maybe I could just quickly read. Um, yeah, go for it. It says, um, this is paragraph 19 of the objectivist ethics. <clears throat> she says, to make this point clear, or to make this point fully clear, the point being something about the nature of value, It is only to a living entity that things can be good or evil. It's only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible. That's what she said in the previous paragraph. Mm -hmm. And then she says, to make this point fully clear, 
Try to imagine an immortal, indestructible robot, an entity which moves and acts, but which cannot be affected by anything, which cannot be changed in any respect, which cannot be damaged, injured, or destroyed. Such an entity would not be able to have any values. It would not. It would have nothing to gain or lose. It cannot regard anything as for or against it, as serving or threatening its welfare, as fulfilling or frustrating its interests. It could have no interests and no goals. Now, I think that's unrealistic, especially the part where it says, like, it can't be affected by anything, really. Mm. So, like, if I put my hand between it and the sun, it doesn't even have a shadow cast on it. It's maybe temperature she, doesn't change at all. If I maybe she it, meant it doesn't emotionally make any noise. affected. Yeah. So, I, but I, I don't, I think she would probably grant that, but just say that's beside the point here. So, mm-hmm. I think there can be hypotheticals that do have value, and that's one for Mine Rand's. Um, even if they're not realistic. By the way, can you hear this weed whacker outside or is that? No, I cannot. Oh, wow. All right. If you can't, if you can't start to hear it, I, uh, let me know and I, I can move yeah. somewhere else. It might okay. be too distracting to me. Oh, um, gotcha. Um, it might but... interfere with my ability to hear you. But anyways, uh, for now, at least I'm okay with trying out some bizarre hypotheticals. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, at very least it shows us where we stand. Like we, we can go, oh, this will never happen in real life. So it doesn't matter, but it shows you where you stand on the topic. If it did um, exist. So I, I can't think of a better way to explain it than that. But um, so my, my hypothetical with the am- amputation is if bodily autonomy is the idea of why a woman can have an abortion because she has it's her body so the fetus inside is part of her body it doesn't matter you it doesn't matter to the level it doesn't matter what its potential is to the level that you can kill it which is the the furthest harm for the most part you can do to any any animal anything that's alive is to kill it so if you can kill it and you have the bodily autonomy to control anything in your body, then if you hired a doctor to cut you open, go inside, surgically remove the arms of this fetus, sew it up, close you up, the fetus is fine, you give birth to an armless baby. Should you be allowed to do this because it's your body, the thing inside your body is yours, and why should the potential life stop you from being able to do that but not stop you from ending its existence Mm. i see yeah okay i do remember a a video where you gave an example like this and i i thought about it a little bit and i i guess my one way one might try to push back on that is to say well yeah you could do that um if it were so you're not violating the rights of the fetus but Maybe it could be argued that you're violating the rights of the post fetus. You know, once it comes out, the baby, you're you've um, done something to undermine its survival, mm-hmm. and maybe in virtue of of that, you could make a case against amputating the fetus's limbs. I'm I'm not 100% sure about that, but maybe you could argue that way yeah um luckily so, nobody would want to do it yeah but, i don't think anyone would want to do that but, but i i think it's a good way to examine like what we think of that thing why does that thing not have value do, 
you know, and then you have, you have things like if you have um, the fact that it's her body and it's connected, then when she gives birth, if the umbilical cord is still connected, is it still her body until the umbilical cord's cut? What if she says, don't cut that. I own that. The umbilical cord is in me, connected to me. And so it's just some interesting muddy territory, even if it doesn't affect most abortions. The umbilical cord case, I think, is actually interesting. And a, a an objectivist philosopher, Harry Binswanger, I, I think is who I heard this from. He's our, I think he's proposed that even once it's out, it's it's even if it's still attached to the umbilical cord, you could still end its life. And he gave the the reasoning being, or what one one motivation for this would be that maybe there's something you just can't catch, like it has some defect or, or some kind of disease, which you you can't know while it's inside the woman. But once you get it out, you can turn it around and inspect it and say, all right, <laughs> looks okay. I'm not going to have like a uh, this is not going to be a Down syndrome baby, which I have to take care of for its entire life. It's going to, mm-hmm. it looks like it's going to be a normal, live a normal human life. And okay, now I'm going to cut the cord. And then at that point, it's got uh, full rights to life. But I, mm-hmm. I think it, there is some, um, it does make some sense to say, all right, well, maybe there, it's just got some problem, which I couldn't have caught until it came out. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's the last last chance you have to uh, do something that wouldn't violate its rights by killing it yeah well and then you have to wonder if if you could kill it because it's still connected then what if you disconnect it and then five seconds later you go oh i i caught it i didn't catch it before but now i caught it but it's disconnected is there any difference for human to human with that connection and i think the only connection is the individuated element yeah, I, I guess in that case, I, I might just say, well, too bad. <laughs> you know, sometimes, uh, you know, life throws you some some uh, bad luck um, and you just have to deal with it. Maybe this is the case. You got to draw the line somewhere. And yeah. th- that seems like a reasonable line to a reasonable place to draw the line. Well, especially because the mother can't be harmed in any way at that point. It would just be a factor of adoption and how... How one, I I guess there'd be the emotional effect of knowing that you have offspring that exists in the world. Um, But yeah, I don't think the mother would be harmed at that point. Um, But yeah, that's, that's about what I had as far as that topic. Yeah. So um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Did you want to talk about the analogy with the rock? Oh, uh, we can talk about that. I guess I'm, I'm, uh, well, so, so I don't, I don't expect people's minds to change quickly on, especially on big topics like this, but mm-hmm. I guess right now I'm curious, like where your, your mind is, um, like, is there something that I've said that has swayed you at all? Or are you exactly where you were at the beginning of this call? Are you, are you still like it would be? I, I, I'm not expecting mm-hmm. you to say, "Oh yeah, you you changed my mind. I'm now um, yeah. in favor of, of abortion." But if you're not in favor of abortion, I'm just curious, like what is the resistance point right now? If you if you could say it, or wh- what is the defect that you you see in my reasoning such that you wouldn't 
want to sign on to abortion. And then whatever that is, if there is such a point, then I'd be interested to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, so just so you know, I am very open-minded and when I get my mind changed, I change it immediately and I have no interest in keeping to a certain stance. Um, and oftentimes I'll find myself just being wrong about, uh, certain topics cause I'm, um, I, I've just, um, I'm ignorant to that topic. In fact, the other day we were, t- I was talking with somebody about a topic of, um, uh, self-checkouts in stores and I called it AI. And the person said, that's not AI. And they educated me on technology. And now I realize I should have called it automation and I'm perfectly fine with being wrong and, uh, acknowledging that. So as, as for this, which, um, I get challenged on abortion stuff all the time. And I slightly adjust my, my viewing, um, since we've only talked about the individuated element, I don't think I've been convinced necessarily, but I have, I feel challenged and I feel like, I like thinking about it in the details. I, I've, um, You've inspired a lot of thought from me, but I don't think that um, the, I don't think that I'm, I feel any different with the fact that it has not been disconnected from the person. Um, My original idea on what I think is the best argument for pro-choice, which is why I always was pro-choice, is that I don't think anybody owes anybody anything. If I stumbled upon you dying on the street and the only thing I had to do to save your life is pluck a beard hair out, I don't think I should legally have to. And so that's that's my stance on I don't think somebody should have to take care of another person. Um, the reason I've kind of adjusted my stance on that is I think there's a couple of complications. If... Um, for almost all cases, any case that doesn't involve rape, the woman was part of choosing to put the life inside of her. But the uh, the more important reason is I think um, as a society, we have to um, have neglect laws. We have to have laws that are different for um, taking care of um, humans at earlier stages. Um, and so I just haven't been convinced of, about that um, individuation as affecting it. Okay, so you use the phrase humans at earlier stages, and I would I would <clears throat> not sign on to the idea that they are humans yet. I, you could say they're potential humans, but I wouldn't call them actual humans. So maybe trying to think of like, what is the fundamental point of difference between us? And maybe it's at least one fundamental point is this point that they are humans. Mm-hmm. So then that could um, lead to the discussion of, all right, well, why call this thing a human? And I, I gave some kind of account as to why I use the human term human in the way I do when talking about concept formation. Mm-hmm. So if the, um, if the if the reason you're in you're against abortion is at least partly that you regard embryos or zygotes or fetuses as humans, then. I would want to know, like, why why do you use human in that sort of way? And what one the one point I thought, thought of is um, on, on this premise: Do we have to rewrite the Guinness Book of World Records? <laughs> so if I ask you, like, mm. what is the tallest human who's ever existed? Um, mm. What what might you answer? I'm curious. Um, the the tallest human that ever existed? Oh, I don't. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but. I believe it's Robert Waldo. He, I think he was eight foot 11 
unless someone has yeah. broken his record this was back in like the 80s or so that i i learned this um mm -hmm. so smallest would have to be reworded to the smallest born human or something like that so if i then said what is the shortest human that ever existed yeah. you, you might say all right well let me look it up in the guinness book of world records and you yeah. might find like there's some guy who's like 18 inches tall or something Ooh, this whoa is good, that's way too big it should this only is good, be like one nanometer no that's a good point but i think the record actually is adults which is why like a a two-year-old wouldn't be compared to but i don't know exactly how they do it um but 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 i get what you mean it's like we don't start your birthday on when you were conceived and there's various different wording um so okay so so why okay so why would i call something a human um so first of all i, th I think um I have to, I think we have to rely on what we learn as humans uh science um I've learned things over the years that I've never known and I'm relying on the information I can gather in books or on on the internet and so um what what I would call a human would be the second that a stage is happening that um, is the the natural process of somebody going through the stage of what you and I are. So uh, sperm on its own, landing on the floor, it, there's no, it will never become anything. Um, eggs on their own will never become anything. Um, now, I, I could learn something new about science that I don't know. Like every time I learn different things about the fertilized egg and how long it takes to um, enter the uterine wall and a handful of different things. If it turns out that the sperm and the egg don't do anything and for like two weeks of what we call pregnancy, they're just hanging out and there's nothing in motion that is making this new creation going, then I, I would like view that as not being um, a stage of life. Uh, a toddler is a stage of life, a teenager, you got puberty, you got all these different things, but there are different stages of what I would call humans. And so the same thing would go for any stage in motion of, of our species. Um, similar to if, uh, if part of why I have um, moral feelings about humans is I don't want anybody to suffer from, let's say, uh, physical pain. Our species, as we know it, can suffer from physical pain. But if there's an adult that um, doesn't have pain receptors and they can't feel pain, I still think I view them morally the same because they are part of the species, not because they can feel it. So that's my initial thought. Okay. So th this is make, reminding me, <clears throat> excuse me, of the rock example that I gave in my previous abortion debate, where if you, if science developed to a point where it could turn rocks into humans, and that became uh, part of their natural, you might call it progression, once you spray the rock with the human chemical, or, you know, however it's done, mm -hmm. then it's on the road to becoming a a well, what I would call a human, but the issue is, mm -hmm. would you, you, you would already call it a human at that point. If I follow the logic of, of your view. Um, if it's, if it's sprayed with something and it, and it is going from one stage to another, and we can witness that stage in motion. Sure. Um, the, I, I, uh, off the top of my head, I think, yes, um, I could easily have 
my mind changed there, but I would think we would view the rocks before sprayed the same way we might view sperm, where we now as humans that are intelligent and have reasoning, we can, we can recognize that the rock means nothing until it's sprayed. Um, but yeah, that'd be interesting. I'd have to, I'd have to, I'd be very curious to see what that looked like. And I don't know if it would matter what it looked like if the spraying made it to where it was going to become a human like you or I, then I think, I think so. What do you think? Well, I, I would, this is, I, I try it's to use individuated. this as a reduct- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I try to use this as a reductio ad absurdum of the idea that the uh, zygotes or the embryo, just because something can become a human, doesn't make it a human already at that point. And so I use this as a, a way of trying to push the, the sense that maybe there's something off about calling um, a, a zygote or an embryo a human at that point by taking something that is more radically different, like a rock, and just saying, assume we could just spray it with some chemical. And then, it, but somehow the scientists have got this chemical to turn that rock into a human like you and I are now. Would you call that sprayed rock? A, a human at that point since that's now in its natural development in my view is no and um because i i think it's not sufficient to be a human that you be in the process of turning into a being like you and i i think you already have to be mm-hmm. um sufficiently like you and i now individuation you say the rock is individuated i don't think individuation is the only characteristic so i think it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition of being a human like a dog which is born that's individuated but you know it's a different species um Mm -hmm. so i wouldn't call that a a human with the rock um it's individuated but it's uh and even if it is going to become a being like you and i i think it's it's not it's not there yet um Mm -hmm. so it it doesn't have a head arms hearts okay well uh, okay so let's say this rock is sprayed and uh, then over a certain amount of time it really doesn't matter let's say this rock develops a full-on human head and so half the rock is rock and half the rock is human head and we know that in some amount of time it doesn't matter it could be five years could be five days that the rest of the rock is going to turn into a body with arms and legs. But right now we just have half rock and a human head. And somehow this human head learns quick. The scientists made the best rock human head and it can talk and it can reason and it can feel pain. It has, it can, um, it can want an itch scratched. Um, how do you, how do you view this, uh, this life form? I would say it's, it's not a human and, you reminded me of an example. That's what I'm looking at. A, there's a example of a rational spider that comes oh, up yeah. in Ayn Rand's book. Um, it says, if you discovered the existence of a Martian who had a rational mind, but a spider's body, would you classify him as a rational animal, i.e. as a man? That's Aristotle's traditional definition of a man. It's the rational animal. So yeah. what if we find this thing, this rational spider, would we call that a man? And her answer is no. Um in the case of the rational spider from Mars, if such a creature were possible, the differences between him and man would be so great that the study of one would scarcely apply to the other, and therefore the formation of a new concept to designate the Martians would be objectively mandatory. So 
although there is this there is one significant similarity there's just so much different about it in normal things we already call man that she says you know we should create a new category for it and not call it a man likewise in your case if something's got a head of a a baby and the rest of it is rock there's something significantly similar to it in us but there's also a lot significantly different yeah uh, and, and i think so different that it would justify using a different term not just a straight on man maybe call it yeah. a rock man hyphenated rock or something. Man, yeah yeah and terms are complicated but to to respond to the spider thing um so this is an element that i would like to learn more about in life which is um, how we separate species so i don't know so i know that most I believe most humans are part homo sapien, part Neanderthal. Um, but I don't know if homo habilis had the ability to, um, sorry, I worded that strangely. Well, anyways, so homo habilis, I don't know if um, had the ability to reason and rationalize things and uh, communicate, but let's, let's say that's the case. Um, I, I have not researched as much and let's say Neanderthal, we definitely know that's the case. And then um, hybrids of uh, which is most of us of homo sapiens and Neanderthal can do the same thing. I don't know the detail that led scientists to decide these have different names. So in my mind, if I was trying to figure out how to live alongside these people, my go-to would be the idea of, I don't kill you, you don't kill me. I don't punch you, you don't punch me. You'd create laws based on these ideas. So coming up with the name to call something for our convenience, and then separately coming up with a name to call something for its scientific value if we create science is its own thing. So yeah, I would say that a, a spider with a human head, I don't know if that was part of it, but that could r rationalize things. I have no interest in calling it a human, but would I live alongside it like a human? If for one, I had reason to trust it. And for two, if it would agree to the rules of the society. So I don't know if that changes much, um, but those are my thoughts initially on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I had a couple thoughts on what you've just said. So one is there's a distinction between the scientific and the philosophic definition of a term. So when Aristotle says man is the rational animal, you know, he's, this is someone writing in, you know, fourth century Athens or Greece and um, science hasn't developed nearly as much as it has to now. And I think if you just say rational animal, that's sufficient in a normal context of distinguishing, you know, cats and dogs and fish on the one hand, and beings like you and I on the other. Now, mm -hmm. as science advances and we discover these finer shades of difference between human habilis and homo sapiens and homo erectus or whatever, Neanderthals, Cro-Magnon man, I don't know all the, uh, the, the different ones that scientists have found, but when you come up with a scientific definition, then you might wanna modify it a little bit. But I think just for general common uh, philosophical purposes, when you're not dealing with a specialized context, then I think rational animal is sufficient as a definition. Um, but with the, uh, so, so that was, that was one point. Now the, um, the rational spider, uh, so it's got the body of a spider, but it has reasoning capabilities. Uh, that's, that's kind of like the rational mosquito example 
which came up in my previous debate with Harley. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, get, I also wouldn't call that a man because I, I think um, it's sufficiently different that despite its possession of rationality, uh, we should still come up with a different term for it. But as to like how we should relate to it, if, as I said in that debate, like if it survived by sucking the blood of humans and all it did was cause problems for humans mm -hmm. and didn't provide any value in the way that we can get value from other human beings, like, you know, you and I can trade, I can go to a grocery store and give them money, they can give me food, we can have these mutual win-win kind of relations. If it's a mm -hmm. species that I can have win-win relationships with, then uh, I guess there is a grounds for respecting rights, because I think rights are egoistic. That's the point of rights, in, in my view, following Ayn Rand's view, she's an egoist. Um, if it's in, in our interest, our long-term um, interest to have this relationship of not using force against another being, uh, then, then we should uh, set, institute this principle where we don't use force against each other. But if it's a kind of species where, let's say it is rational, but the only way for it to survive is to be in conflict with us and make mm -hmm. our lives worse, that sort of rational being, I would say, no, we shouldn't respect its rights. Because, and to do so would be um, altruistic or self-sacrificial. And since I think egoism makes sense, we should live in a way that benefits ourselves. In that sort of case, I would say don't respect its rights. So it just depends on how yeah. we fill in the details of the hypothetical. Oh, I you know I I agree with you. It's why when I watch movies like X Men and everybody's saying, "Oh, we should treat the the superheroes like equals," I'm like, in this world, I'm scared of those guys. They they can do a lot of wild things that aren't um, what I'm used to humans agreeing to do or not do. Um, so yeah, it does become complicated. I would say one thing that's interesting is words. So I mean. Um, I think we could probably both agree that humans create words to figure out how to communicate. So if somebody has a different definition for what something means or what they think it should mean, like if you feel like human should mean once you're individuated, you're a human. And I feel like human should be, um, let's say conception, conception through uh, your death, then, then we just have different meanings for the word we're using similar to um some people when they talk about racism they just mean the idea of one person talking negatively or calling their own race superior to another one but then if somebody says oh you have to have the power dynamic in there the fact that people have different definitions i don't i don't think necessarily needs to affect how um, the conversation goes on it and that would make my argument just go to, okay, let's ignore the idea of the word human. Uh, I can, let's just take a, a made up word like zerp. And then so what, so you use the word human to mean somebody individuated, where I use the word zerp to mean anything from the level you're talking about, individuated through death, and anything from conception up until the individuated. And that's called a zerp to me. And I think that the zerps should be protected in a society that wants to show that its goals are to protect zerps. Um, so. Yeah. So the, uh, I guess you're you're raising the issue of, or the question maybe in in some people's minds of whether language is subjective. Is it just arbitrary how we use words? I, I don't think it is. Um, I think that, that's a big part of what Ayn Rand's book on epistemology is. Is um, and part of the reason she calls her philosophy objectivism is she thinks there there are objective 
ways of forming concepts as opposed to subjective ways and also as opposed to what she calls intrinsic ways. There's this trichotomy that runs throughout her, her analysis of many issues. There's the intrinsic school of thought, which says, you know, it's just um, inherent in the nature of reality, apart from human choices in the mind, that we should call things uh, humans or not. And then there's a subjective view, which says, no, it's, it has nothing to do with the facts of reality. We just arbitrarily choose to use terms in, a, in the way that we do. And then there's the objective view, which uh, in her sense of that term, it means, no, there's, there's facts of reality, but they have to cohere with or be integrate with the nature of the human mind. So it wouldn't be useful to us humans to have a concept that integrates, let's say, um, dogs and leaves and the shade of green on the patio umbrella that I see um, about five feet from me right now. Just those mm. three things, nothing else in the universe. And I'm going to create this term, ZERP, to pick out just those things. Now, mm. is that a useful concept to have to carry to some cognitive weight um, in my mind as I'm going through the world? Um, I think she, she would say no. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's a useless kind of grouping to make as opposed to say the concept tree. We come across these sorts of things all the time. It's a very useful concept. It takes uh, a cognitive load off of our shoulders, so to speak, to have this one term to refer to all these millions or billions of things in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so some terms do useful cognitive work. Some don't. Some clutter our thinking. Some clarify our thinking. Um, and depending on whether a term does that, whether it helps our, our thinking process and our engagement with the world or not, we can decide whether it's a valid term. Yeah. So I guess in, in the case of ZERP, we would have to decide, well, is it, is it, is it uh, useful to have a concept that integrates mm -hmm. both anything from conception all the way through someone who's lived 80 years and then dies? And if it is useful, is it also useful to have another concept that only starts integrating things from birth to to death mm. and you know maybe maybe both of those concepts could be useful and there's also further questions of you know, well how do these integrate with rights maybe it is useful to have a concept like zerp but rights don't apply to zerps they only apply to things mm. that um, are post-birth and you know we could have an argument about that but those are some of the yeah. considerations that came to mind when you were describing uh, this term zerp yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I actually get bothered by it all the time. When I'm talking to people about language, people will say language changes. So you got to go along with it. And I'll say language can change, but it's up to each of us to decide what words we want to use. Um, when people are encouraged to say using like they, them as a as a singular pronoun or, or doing uh, neo pronouns or one thing that bothers me a lot and I, I've... Uh, done some deep dives on it is um asexual has always meant that some that there's they are not sexual similar to atheist means no god but it's changed asexual a lot of people have changed it to meaning little to no sex which would be funny if ch people change atheist to little to no god but uh <laughs> but uh so asexuals they'll, they'll be groups of them where they'll have a bunch of different like side branch names and i think those are nonsense i've analyzed all of what each of them mean and i think they're nonsense but some people like them and there are thousands of people that use them in their day-to-day -day language and i don't want to stop anybody from using what they use so language will morph based on what we all decide together on how to communicate 
Um, but I mostly think you're right. I just, um, I think we could, I think a lot of people get hung up on the words and they'll say, um, I think this human should be defended. And then it, then the response is that's not a human yet where maybe the best approach is for me to say is why shouldn't we protect the, the fetus, just the fetus. Like, I don't need to call it a human. I can just say the day before it's born, let's analyze what about it. Um, shouldn't be protected. Do we care about morals? And if we want to go that route, I guess I will ask you is even though I think, and I'm guessing you think that the main reason to protect humans has nothing to do with specifically morals. Um, I think it plays a part. So if there is a human or a non-human that can suffer do we want to um, look at that suffering element? Okay, so, so the um, few thoughts. Sorry about that. <laughs> I rambled a lot right there. No, that's all right. Uh, so, so you're saying, well, let's say I grant it's a fetus. Why not protect the rights of the, or why not give the fetus rights? I guess that's uh, kind of what you're, one, one point you're raising. So I think that raises the question is of what is the point of rights? Mm -hmm. And in my view, following Rand, I, I think the point of rights is to help individual humans, um, individuated humans, which I think is a redundant term, but I don't want to beg the question. Um, so I'll put the adjective in front of the noun. Uh, I think the point is to... Um, enable individuated humans to survive and flourish in a peaceful way together in a mutually beneficial way. So I, I think the issue of rights primarily comes up with, uh, let's say adults and how should they interact? Is it better mm -hmm. for us to trade with each other by voluntary consent or should I just be able to come and um, punch you and rob you and uh, rape you, murder you and, do whatever I, I need to coerce you in order to survive. And I, I think the right answer is that we should uh, not coerce each other. We should engage in a voluntary sort of way. So mm -hmm. the, the point of rights is to enable uh, individuals to uh, act together. So the issue of rights wouldn't really come up on a desert island if you're just all by yourself. Mm -hmm. But once you add another person to that island, now there's a question, all right? How should we relate to each other? Should I try to make you my slave? Or should I try to offer you something of value? Like, all right, you work on um, building the shelter and I'll work on catching some fish and then we can trade with each other to mutual benefit. And yeah. I, I think that is the point of rights. It's to help individuals do better when they're living together. And mm -hmm. since I don't regard the, the, uh, the fetus as an individual yet, I don't think the, the issue of rights, I think is just not applicable to it yet. It's kind of outside the context of, what the purpose of rights is, which is sure. to allow individuals to interact well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I would say on the island with the one person, realistically, if you're stronger, you're probably better off if you turn that person into a slave and keep them in mind for a possible future meal. But when it's not just two of you, if if you get a group of thousands together to live in a society and you're creating ideas of laws and why you'd even have laws. I definitely agree with everything you just said. I think the idea is for adults. It's you don't kill me. I don't kill you. So anybody capable of killing. And uh, as far as the mutual, um, 
as far as the value that can come from it, I think that's complicated of if you gain anything, but I think the, uh, the value of having the protection, I don't know if you view rights and protection the same. Um, I don't know if it's just, uh, but anyways, um, so I think that the idea of protection is important. And so that's probably a good way to look at abortion anyways, is to even see why we protect humans. And so I would say, you don't kill me, I don't kill you. That's our main rule. No killing in this society. Okay, so what about somebody that can't kill somebody? So you could say somebody that's like disabled. Does that does that person matter? So one reason you would want to say that you would just protect all adult humans would be that if you say as soon as somebody is unable to kill, therefore they can't play a role in the mutual benefit you don't kill me i don't kill you is they won't want to join if they know that as soon as they become uncapable they can be killed so you got to factor them in and then you got kids so you got this idea of if a if a mother has um four kids and she feels like she can't feed them all so she wants to um to kill one of her kids um just because she doesn't want to see her kids suffer um, I'm curious to hear your stance on this, but my, my stance would be on a, a very basic level society with no um, foster care adoption, none of that stuff. Unlike if an adult killed an adult, which that person should go to jail probably for life. If a, if a parent chose to kill its child that isn't partaking in the mutual benefit of you don't kill me, I don't kill you. I think you have to let that slide. Do, do you agree with that? I, well, if I'm not sure if it's an implication of what you're saying, but if the implication is that a, there's not a reason, at least on my view, not to kill a, a child, I would, I would, uh, no, I would say, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I, but I do think the, the case of uh, children is maybe trickier than the case mm -hmm. of adults. It's, um but i i think maybe the the uh the reason for uh having a prohibition against killing children is not exactly the same reason as in the case of adults i'm not mm -hmm. sure about this this I, I i do think it's a little bit trickier yeah well um, well for example i i guess what i mean is so if i was in nature and there's no society and i saw a person kill another person and I knew I could kill the person that killed the other person. I would do it. But if I saw a mother killing one of her four kids, and let's say I happened to know that she was doing it because she thought she couldn't keep them all fed, but she's going to feed the other ones. I would think if I kill her as what I'm viewing as taking this bad person out of existence, then I have to decide, okay, am I going to take care of her other three kids? So I would uh, imagine what's ideal in a society that doesn't have certain setups that you have to accept that that without advancements like we have now there might be cases where somebody has to eliminate their offspring that cannot um make their own choices like adults can okay <clears throat> if you if you're talking about a case where there's just not enough resources food to to support everyone then I, I think that unlike society today in the West, at least, um, is what we might call a lifeboat or emergency situation, which uh, Rand talks about. She has an article called The Ethics of Emergencies, where mm -hmm. she shows how um, 
the, the normal rules of ethics are not meant to apply. So it can be justified mm -hmm. to coerce someone. For instance, if you're on a lifeboat, if there's a lifeboat that can only hold one person, but there's two people on it, are you justified in using force against the other person? Like normally mm -hmm. she's, she says, no, don't use force against people. That violates their rights. But in an emergency situation, a lifeboat situation, it could be justified. So um, I think in the kind of case you're describing where there's just not enough food for everyone, maybe it's actually best um, to put one of your children to death as tragic as that would be. And um, it, it would be justified in that case. Uh, but, you know, we, we don't know, we don't live in that sort of scenario. So I don't think that would yeah. carry over to normal life. Normally, I don't think it would be, but you might actually be putting it out of its misery. Like if it, the only option is to either starve to death and have this tortuous, long drawn out death or just immediately um, put it to death, throw it off a cliff or something. So it doesn't even notice what happened. It's just gone. And maybe that's the more mm -hmm. humane thing to do. Yeah. But fortunately we're not in that situation normally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, partially I only brought it up because I'm actually doing some writing on it and the idea of mutual benefit. So I'm analyzing all the, the elements. Um, but yeah, so, so I feel like in a society where you're, everything's focused on mutual benefit, you're right. There's a difference with uh, younger and older and uh, you know, kids are essentially the property of their, their parents, their parents um, can essentially do whatever they want, but the kids have one thing that the adults also have, which is protection. The government protects them from being harmed or killed. And then aside from that, the parents get all the say. The parents can brainwash them into a religion if they want. The parents can uh, let them eat junk food or make them only eat vegetables. Um, so there is there is a huge difference. But I think I think what an ideal society would have would be that protection. And I just haven't been convinced that that protection shouldn't span the entire existence of the human. Um, I, I feel convinced that uh, it shouldn't protect sperm. <laughs> you don't have to um, put people in jail for masturbating instead of trying to make as many babies as possible. But as soon as a human starts, there's something about this idea of knowing your society has this protection in place and that it prevents anybody from killing one of the species without what we deem as good reason. Okay. So that brings us back to the issue of, is it a human? Um, well, no, so no, use... no, not, not just because I think it's a human. I think um, because it's, it is, it is one of our species in motion. I'll, I'll go with the idea of not even calling it a human, but I think based on its, um, on what, on whatever you want to call it, that that should have protection. Okay. Yeah. So then there's the issue of, uh, well, why? Why should that have production? Maybe we could look at the implications of, well, if we didn't protect it, such and such bad things would happen there. And we want to avoid those bad things. Therefore, we should protect it. Um, and we could talk about that. But I notice it's, um, we've just, we've gone past 1230. I don't oh, know how much yeah. time you have. Um, you know, about five, 10 minutes to wrap up. Uh, okay. I, yeah. Okay. So, um yeah, so I would want to push back on calling it a human, but then if you say, well, all right, fine, I won't call it a human, but why not protect it nonetheless? I guess because I, I think of the the purpose of rights is enabling oneself to live a good life. 
So they're egoistic in their purpose or selfish to use a term Rand often uses. Um, she has a distinct sense of that term selfishness. Um, but it's for your own benefit. And I think if you're, if you are treating the, the embryo as worthy of protection such that the woman now has to undergo nine months of pregnancy, then I would say that's, that's not to her, that's, that's violating her, her uh, ability to uh, live a good life. Uh, so I would say it's, yeah, it's, it's interfering with her rights to live the kind of life she wants. And I guess you could come back, well, what about the embryos right to live the kind of life it wants well one thing i would say is it's it doesn't even have a once yet it's not even conscious um so it's i think it's premature to think of it in in that sort of way yeah no i i agree with you i i think i think there is reason to point out why maybe abortion is at least more all right than it isn't like the the fact that somebody could suffer, they could go through this wear and tear of their body, all this different stuff. And then if you factor in the stages it's at, a, a, a zygote, I care a lot less about a zygote than I care about a fetus. And I care a lot less about a fetus than I care about a, a one-year-old. And I actually made a chart and it's kind of interesting to see where like 90-year-olds fit on that chart. Um, but uh, so so I agree with you in a big sense. I think, I think um, before getting into the the uh the lack of good life that this mother might have if she's not allowed to have an abortion i would have to i would have to get to some kind of understanding on the nine month grown fetus inside of a dead mother and because i could see it being thought of as no value whatsoever from zygo all the way through that if there has to be some kind of a separation um, now legal is interesting, but let's just look at a, a personal, um, um, you, you were saying that, um, we, sorry, what's, what's the word for it? Um, our own ego, like we, we have to do it like a selfishness, which I totally agree with. But, uh, the, those of us that do things based on empathy and do things to help other people is because we get joy out of that. We get pleasure from helping. So if I see a baby lying in the street, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to take it somewhere to help it. Um, it doesn't mean that legally certain people should have to do certain things, but I want to do that. So if I pick up this baby on the street and help it, I don't view it any different than if that exact same baby was inside of its dead mom on the street. Like I want to help that baby. And uh, I, I, I'm curious, and I know on the spot it's complicated, but I would be interested to see if down the road, after analyzing it, at least in the rare case of a dead mother, if you end up feeling differently about if if the baby becomes individuated once the second life is ended. And uh, it's, it's just something worth thinking about. I didn't think about it until like yesterday, but. I think it could just vary from case to case. Like I, um, as to whether... I or anyone would value the uh, the almost born, the nine month fetus. So like before I was saying, if you're a father and you really wanted to have a child, <laughs> then um, I can see that you would uh, definitely want to save that fetus and have it be born 
um, but if, if you really did not want to have a child, you say you hate the idea of having a child, then uh, I can see how you wouldn't, you wouldn't value it at all. It would be a threat to your, the kind of life that you want to live. And so what egoism looks like in a given case can vary. So depending on the, the, the father's values, he might or might not want to save that fetus. And what if, by, go ahead. I was just going to say, what if, the, what if there's no family, there's zero connections whatsoever. It's just a matter of, does the government have something set up where they think in this case, when there's no family, do we just let the baby die out inside the mother or do we take it out and put it up for adoption? Um, what, what would you think the argument for why the government should do one or the other would be? Hmm. So this is, I'm really thinking off the top of my head here. Uh, I guess the one thought is I, I don't think the government should put anyone in a position of having to do something they didn't voluntarily um, decide they shouldn't, people shouldn't have to take on unchosen obligations. So mm -hmm. if, if saving this baby or saving the fetus and allowing it to be born implies that someone would then have to be responsible for taking care of it, then that's, that's basically uh, putting uh, an unchosen obligation on people, which I don't think is right. So maybe um, the right approach here is to say the government should only uh, save the fetus if it's got some people lined up, like pe parents mm -hmm. who want to adopt kids, who maybe they've uh, they want surrogate um, parent mothers to give birth to a child, and then they take it. So if they don't have mm -hmm. anyone like that lined up to take care of the child, then maybe the right approach is to just let the fetus die. And if they do have someone lined up, then go ahead and uh, let it let it be born. Okay, I like that. And just for the sake of being challenging, because it's fun to be challenging, let's say nobody is lined up. But in this one area of our society, um, the government does not fund their abort their um, their adoption centers with taxes. Let's say the adoption center only stays open because there are people that donate. So people want um, protection for these babies. So people that personally care um, donate money. And so all the money that pays the workers that work at the adoption place, whether that baby gets adopted or not, there'll be just be people there that take care of the baby until it does. It is funded willingly. So it's not putting anybody out. Yeah, I guess if there's a center set up for this purpose, that uh, has an ongoing basis of support to keep these kids, I guess, in in foster care, maybe you'd call it, until they get a more permanent home, then it seems reasonable for the, uh, um, I don't know if the government would be the agent, but it seems reasonable to me to allow it to be born as long as there's a a place which is which can handle it can it yeah. can raise it i agree um, yeah i agree that that would be a necessary element um yeah yeah it's interesting yeah. well uh, <laughs> i'm glad you put up with my uh wild mm -hmm. ideas um but yeah that's probably a good place to stop it unless you had any final thoughts no i think that's good I, yeah and uh yeah i brought uh, one or two wild ideas of my own and um one being nine rand's example of the immortal robot and then also the the rational spider, although I think she, the way it's raised in her book, she says this is like 
some professors will raise this as an objection. They, they mm -hmm. often raise borderline cases and as, as a means to say, well, concepts are just arbitrary. What do we do in this case? And she'll mm -hmm. end up saying it's optional and sometimes some, in some cases, how to classify it. Although in the rational spider case, it's not, but anyways, she, she, she at least entertains and provides some kind of response to this far-fetched example. She didn't, she doesn't just dismiss it out of hand and doesn't say anything about it. She, she does have something to say about how yeah. it should be handled. Um, so I am, uh, I guess I'm, I'm gaining more facility in my, or experience in my thinking about how to handle far-fetched cases as I uh, think about this more. And I have been doing that a lot recently. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good talking. If you want to talk about some other topics in the near future or the far future, uh, let me know. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, it was good. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we could uh, talk again sometime. Awesome. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye.